give us such a glimpse of who he is that it would warm our hearts. And just as the the disciples on the road to Emmaus last week were warmed to Christ, that that would happen with us today as well. Father in heaven, we confess that as we come to you, we come chilled. In so many ways, Lord, our hearts are not warmed the way they ought, uh, that they're not ready to praise you as we ought, because our minds can't even comprehend of the ways you ought to be praised. But as we, as we come to the Word, and as you shine the light of your countenance upon us through it, God, we begin to see you as you are, and our hearts are stirred to praise you as we ought. Help us to that end, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Take out your copy of God's Word, please, and turn with me to Luke 24. We've been studying Luke for a couple years now, and so your Bibles ought to automatically fall open to it, but if they don't, it's on page 885 of the Bible in your row. And let me give you some context. Last week, we encountered two disciples who were utterly heartbroken because they had hoped that Jesus was the Christ that the church had been waiting for since the fall. But after his death and burial, they were so discouraged, they were convinced that it was all over, that it was all hopeless. And so, depressed and dejected, they are leaving the Passover, they're leaving Jerusalem, they're taking a seven-mile journey back to their village called Emmaus. And along the way, these two disciples are encountered by the risen Lord Jesus, and he walked with them, he, he taught them along the way, but they didn't realize it was him. And so, unbeknownst to them who it was, took the scriptures and opened them and taught them how it was that the Messiah had to suffer many things in order to make atonement for the sins of his people. And then they came to these disciples' house and they invited him in, still didn't realize it was Jesus. And he sat down with them in their home. They began to share a meal. And when Jesus broke the bread, Suddenly, their eyes were open, and they realized this is Jesus. And and amazingly, in that very moment, it says he vanished. He, He disappeared. We don't know the physics of that, but this is what the Scriptures teach. And so the two disciples stared at each other for a moment. They recollected. They said, weren't our hearts strangely warmed as he opened the Scriptures to us? And they do something no sensible person would do. They take off running back to Jerusalem. They've just made the seven-mile journey away from Jerusalem, but now the love of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, so animates them that they take off back down this road. It's probably 10 o'clock at night at this point. They run down this dark, dangerous road seven miles back to Jerusalem. Let's look what happens as they enter this room where the disciples were. This is Luke 24, starting at verse 33. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was uh, known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. They were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do, your, why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. 
And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything to eat here? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Christ's words here, peace to you, are astounding words. Now, they're words that you've heard in various ways before. The term peace is is, is a frequent greeting, but you know, of course, that peace means more than that. Neville Chamberlain was prime minister of Britain after World War I. He knew that his country was still wounded and weary from the First World War. He came up with what was known as a policy of appeasement, which meant he was willing to do anything to avoid another war in Europe. He was willing to make all sorts of compromises in order to avoid war. Well, the problem came in late summer of 1938 as Adolf Hitler claimed that a portion of Czechoslovakia belonged to Germany, and news leaked that Hitler was planning military attack, and once again, Europe prepared for war. And Chamberlain, uh, seeking to avoid war at all costs in September of 1938, traveled to Germany. He heard Hitler's demands in a 14-hour meeting, and the two reached an agreement. And as a result, Chamberlain came back to England and confidently proclaimed, we have peace in our time. But 11 months later, Hitler rallied the troops, ignored the agreement, and World War II ensued. Looking back, it's no surprise to us that Hitler would break his agreement, which he called just a piece of paper. But what is astounding is that Chamberlain would make such an empty declaration of peace while such hostility still existed. In our passage today, we see another declaration of peace. But rather than an empty platitude like Chamberlain proclaimed, this is a a proclamation of real, enduring peace But it's even more astounding than what Chamberlain said because this declaration of peace, it's astounding because Christ spoke these words and he spoke them to the 11 disciples. These same men who 72 hours before deserted and disowned him. This is an absolutely stunning thing for our Lord Jesus to say. There's two elements of this proclamation of peace that we're going to look at today. First, I want you to see Jesus is talking about real forgiveness. And second, Jesus is talking about real communion, or we could say real fellowship. Chamberlain's proclamation of peace was false peace. Jesus' proclamation is real peace, and the elements of it are real forgiveness and real communion. So first, real forgiveness. wonder how many of you here have ever been deeply wronged, hurt by someone else, betrayed, and then had the terrible experience of having to face that person maybe hours, maybe days, maybe even years later, that same person who hurt you. If you have, you know the incredible pain that ensues of facing somebody after they've betrayed you. 
And as our Lord enters this room, we need to realize He's coming face to face with the same people who betrayed Him in His arrest. They denied knowing Him during His trials. They hid at a distance during His crucifixion, and then they went home sulking after He died. And what were His first words recorded in Luke's gospel to these 11 disciples after all of that? Did He say to them, how dare you? You're going to have to make it right with me. You forsook me in my moment of greatest need. None of that. His first words spoken to this group who utterly betrayed him are peace to you. That's incredible. What a picture of the heart of Christ here. Because our our hearts aren't like that, are they? If, If you've ever been betrayed or wronged or even disappointed, you know that typically the last thing you want for that person is peace. You want them them to experience some turmoil. You want them to hurt a little bit because they've made you hurt. You want them to lose sleep at night because they've made you lose sleep at night. You want them to pay for what they've done. And you know, we've all experienced this before. Someone wrongs us and then they get off scot-free and it just makes us seethe with anger. Sometimes we'll even tell people we forgive them because we know we have to, but our hearts still seethe with bitterness and anger. But that's not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is a commitment that rather than making the person pay, rather than making the person suffer for what they've done, you're going to bear it yourself. You're not going to rejoice in their hardships. You're not going to bring it up over and over and over again. You'll bear it yourself. So look at the heart of Christ here. As awful as the disciples' betrayal is, he doesn't even bring it up. He doesn't pick it back up. Instead, he greets them with this incredible benediction. Peace to you. And I know that some of you in this room grew up in the 60s, didn't you? And so you think of peace, and it's kind of, it's that empty, cheap greeting. Peace, man. And it was born out of a time of turmoil. You, you, you had hostility between nations. You had hostility between generations. You had hostility between uh, the government and the people. And so what was the answer to all of it? Peace, man. Well, Jesus, what kind of peace did you come to bring? You know, because world peace would be really nice, wouldn't it? Peace in our homes would be nice. But here we are, 2,000 years later, we see war in Ukraine and many other wars that are not nearly as publicized. We see political upheaval and political turmoil. We even see hostility in our own families. And so if that's the kind of peace that Jesus came to bring, then Jesus utterly failed. But that wasn't his purpose. Now, that kind of peace will come one day on the other side of glory when all evil is cast away and everything sad comes untrue. But the peace that Jesus came to bring is not world peace. It's not economic peace. It's not political peace. It's not even peace in the family. In fact, Jesus told us in the Gospels that it would separate families, that the Gospel would serve like a sword in families, driving brother against brother and father against uh, son. Jesus didn't come to bring those kinds of earthly peace. He came to reconcile two greater enemies, God and man. And when Jesus says, peace to you, he's saying that the greatest hostility in the history of the world has been dealt with. I have paid the price. 
That was his priority, to reconcile God and man, because that is our greatest need. Our greatest need is not world peace or political peace. Our greatest need is reconciliation to God. The hostility between nations, the hostility between Ukraine and Russia, is nothing compared to the hostility that exists between God and man because of sin. Do you realize that sin is, it's not an accident, it's not a mistake, and it's not a disease. It is a declaration of war upon the authority of God. It is an attack upon the kingdom of God. God is a sovereign lawgiver, and when we sin, when we rebel against his word, it is a shot fired at his throne. That's what sin is. Look with me at Romans 8 for a moment as Paul articulates this to us. And he's speaking of of unbelievers, our natural state, our natural disposition towards God when we are still dead in our sins. Romans 8, verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. See, that's what sin is. And so, if you're ever apt to think, why does sin receive such a big punishment in Scripture? It's not so much because of the sin itself, but because of the fact that it is treason against the God of the universe, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so think of when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. If you and I were to read the newspaper the next day, I have a feeling that the the headline would read something like this. Man and woman kicked out of paradise because they ate fruit. And they probably would have mocked the one who kicked them out. Because what was the big deal? If you say it like that, it sounds like no big deal. Sin is no problem. Here's how that headline should have read. Man and woman exiled from paradise after colluding with enemy to commit treason against sovereign king. That's what sin is. That's why it was such a big deal in the garden, and that's why sin is such a big deal today. That's why God takes sin seriously. And so you and me, our greatest need is to be reconciled to God. Our sins to be dealt with. Our relationship with God renewed and restored. When Christ speaks these incredible words, peace to you, he's actually tying together the whole Old Testament in one line, peace to you. Think about the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament, Yom Kippur. Once a year, the high priest would take the blood of a sacrifice and he would go into the Holy of Holies. He would pull back that heavy, thick curtain and he would slip with much fear and trembling into the Holy of Holies. He would sprinkle blood all along the way. He would sprinkle blood upon the mercy seat to make atonement for the sins, first of himself and then the sins of the people. And then do you know what he would do? He would walk out and he would pronounce a benediction to the people. What was the benediction? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you peace. 
And this happened year after year after year. Now, if it was really peace, if it was lasting peace, why did it need to happen the next year and the next year? Why did it have to happen 1,400 times if they really had peace? Because that was a picture. It was an image of what Christ came to do. Look with me at the book of Hebrews. Now, Lord willing, when we get done with Luke, we're going to go into Hebrews. Hebrews is all about why Jesus Christ is superior to everything in the Old Testament. And when we come to Hebrews 9, we get an incredible explanation of how it is that Jesus is superior to all those other things. So we're re- in, in Hebrews 9, we're being reminded about the work the high priest did of going into that holy place and making the sacrifice. And Hebrews is connecting the dots between that Old Testament high priest and the work that Christ did. Look at, at Hebrews 9, starting at verse 23. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of heavenly things to be purified with these rites. Now, what are the copies of heavenly things? He's talking about the temple and the sacrifices and all of that. Those are replicas of heavenly realities. That's why when you're looking at the Old Testament, you're given such specific design for the tabernacle and for the temple because they are replicas of heavenly realities. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these Listen to this, verse 24, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. He is the great high priest, Hebrews is saying, and he's going into the real, the true, the heavenly holy of holies on our behalf, sprinkling his own blood on the mercy seat for us for our atonement. Verse 25, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places year, every year with blood not his own, for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The temple with the sacrifices and everything that the old covenant represented, it was all a replica of what Jesus came to do. Where Jesus, as our great high priest, went there into that heavenly holy of holies and sprinkled his blood and made atonement for us once for all. That's what the cross was accomplishing. The entire Old Testament system was fulfilled in that action. And so when Christ says here, peace, He's taking the role of that great high priest who has gone into the Holy of Holies, made a sacrifice for the people, come out and now gives the benediction. I think when he says peace to you, it's a summary. It's it's an abbreviation of that great Aaronic benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you and lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you peace. You know, God even gave us this incredible image when Jesus died of how we are at peace with God. Jesus dies, and that curtain that the, the, the Old Testament priest would have to lift out of his way in order to go into the Holy of Holies, that curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. And it's showing us that those things which have kept us apart from God, that sin which kept us apart from God, has now been forgiven. Well, at this point, the disciples hear him say peace, and their response is is terror. They are absolutely horrified, and they think they've seen a ghost. 
But Jesus wants them to understand, if I'm just a ghost, your sins aren't forgiven. If I am not really raised from the dead, your sins are not forgiven. See, when Christ rose on Easter morning, he left with him in the depths of the grave every one of his people's sins. There they remain, buried from the sight of God, so completely that in the day of judgment, they will not be able to rise up and testify against us. That means, beloved, if you are trusting in Christ, if you are one with Christ, if he has paid the penalty for your sins, we find in the resurrection the strongest possible, the most real possible proclamation of peace because our sins have been forgiven. That hostility towards God has been dealt with. His peace is upon us. That's why Jesus says in verse 39, he wants them to know it's real, real forgiveness. So he says, see my hands and my feet. It's I myself, touch me. A spirit doesn't have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. Christ isn't just proving what's true about himself. He's proving your sins are forgiven because I am resurrected. Let's just boast for a moment in the heart of Christ. Think about what the scriptures tell us about his heart. We're told in the scriptures, it is his glory to pass over a transgression, that he delights to in showing mercy, that though our sins are as scarlet, he is ever ready to make them white as snow, that he will blot them out, that he will cast them behind his back, he will separate us from them as far from them as the east is from the west, that he will bury them in the depths of the sea, that he will remember them no more. All these phrases in Scripture convey the same truth, that he is a God more willing to forgive even than we are willing to ask forgiveness and far more ready to pardon than men are to be pardoned. That's the kind of Savior we have. He knows everything about you. He knows your sins. He knows the motives behind your sin. Even those things nobody else has ever known about you, He knows them. Maybe even the things you don't know about yourself, He knows them. He knows everything that ought to testify against you, and what proclamation does He make? Peace to you. There's no sinner in this world who comes to Christ in faith and repentance and is turned away. There's no one in this world who ever wanted to be pardoned, who came to him in sincere faith and repentance, and he turned away. Christ delights to forgive sin. That is his heart of love. And so for all of us who come to him by faith, we need to understand this because our sins are forgiven. There is absolutely no hostility in God towards us. Listen to, to Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's laid down arms. Or, or to take the Genesis 9 picture, the Noah picture, God makes that covenant that he'll never again flood the earth, and then he sets his bow in the clouds. That's, that's what a rainbow means. Are we clear on that? Okay. But a bow was a weapon of war. It's a weapon of hostility, and God says, I have put it up on the shelf. Why? 
The Father chose to shower his hostility towards our sin upon our representative Christ. And in return, he showers us with the benediction that his Son alone deserved. Let me make an application here early about forgiveness. Christian, and let me assume, uh, let me speak specifically to Christians. If you are a Christian, then this statement of peace, of sins forgiven, is the truest thing about you in the courts of God. Not your failures, not whether you're an elder or deacon or pastor, nothing else about you supplants this as the core truth about who you are in the courts of eternity. If you are trusting in Christ, then in the courts of eternity, your sins have been forgiven. And I know that there are some in here who struggle with this, and you say things like, I know I'm forgiven, but I just can't forgive myself. Or I've asked God to forgive me, but I still feel guilty. I hear those things over and over again. And so I am not talking to people who have not come to trust in Christ. I do not have the same word of assurance to you, but to those who have trusted in Christ, but you struggle with digging up those sins from the old grave. You have to believe Christ's word of peace here. Uh, R.C. Sproul said it this way, When people say, I've asked God to forgive me, but I still feel guilty, here's what he says. If you still feel guilty, then pray to God again. But this time, don't ask him to forgive you that sin from your past that's haunting you. Rather, ask him to forgive you for insulting his integrity by refusing to accept his forgiveness. Who are you to refuse to forgive yourself when God has forgiven you? Are you a higher court judge than God? When God promises to forgive repentant sinners, he is not playing games. Your sins have been separated as far from you as the east is from the west because Christ bore them. You do not need to pick them back up again. If you are in Christ, you are utterly, absolutely, perfectly, completely forgiven. I want you to think about and and meditate on this line from John Owen. The greatest sorrow and burden you can lay upon the Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to Him is not to believe that He loves you. The greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to Him is to not believe that He loves you. So that's the first thing, real forgiveness, substantial forgiveness. Just as Jesus was resurrected, we are really forgiven, truly forgiven. And that leads to a second thing, and that is real communion, real fellowship with Christ. Look at verse 41. While they still disbelieved for joy, and were marveling. It's a funny way of saying it. You and I would have said they thought it was too good to be true. See, there was an excitement in their hearts that they were afraid to let their minds ascend to, because if it was really true, 
If this good news were really true, then all the restrictions and all the burdens of the old covenant and the ceremonial law and all those different things and the weight of their sin, it was all laid aside and they now were opened up to a life of communion with Christ, fellowship with Jesus Christ. The gulf created between them and God because of sin had been repaired. Fellowship was restored. And it was such good news to them that their faith had trouble catching up with their joy. And so Christ, in his immense kindness towards them, he gives them uh, evidence that this is real. And it's that great line, is there anything here to eat? And they bring him a piece of broiled fish and he eats it right in front of them. Now, I've never seen a ghost eat broiled fish. I've seen people eat broiled fish. They'd never seen a ghost eat broiled fish. They'd seen people eat broiled fish. And so it, they understood this is a flesh and bones man resurrected from the dead. This is God incarnate. I said it last week. I'll say it again. Jesus is not seeking to impress people with his resurrection body as if this is some kind of magic trick. He wants them to see this awesome reality that by grace, these disciples who had just utterly failed their teacher can now live their lives in fellowship with him. Now I know it's easy to be a little bit envious of the disciples. Wouldn't it have been great to be there at that table and, and to see Jesus face to face? Man, my faith would be so much stronger if I just saw him face to face, right? If we just had that privilege. I can tell you with 100% certainty that if that had been the best thing for us, it would have been no problem for this immortal, resurrected Lord Jesus to stay on earth as long as he wanted. To stay on earth even till today and we could go take pilgrimages and see him face to face if that were the best thing for us. But the fact that Jesus ascended and we do not see him face to face in the flesh, tells us that it was better for him to do that. And I want you to see why. Look with me at John 14. Jesus is the night in which he's betrayed, upper room discourse, starting in verse 15. And I want you to follow along because this is incredibly important. This is the substance of what it means to walk with Christ. We saw those two disciples last week walking with Christ physically. You and I live our lives. We live the Christian life walking with Christ spiritually. So look at John 14, starting at verse 15. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I'll not leave you as orphans. In other words, I'll not forsake you. Well, how are you not going to forsake us if you're going to go, if you're going to ascend to heaven? He says, I will come to you yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. 
Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. I will show myself to him. And then look down at verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. What is the peace of Christ? It is his communion, his fellowship with us. This is real fellowship promised to believers by Jesus Christ. When I speak of fellowship with Christ, of communion with Christ, I'm speaking of living, personal, mind-engaging, heart-warming enjoyment of Christ as we live our lives in communion with Him. It almost sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? We might be apt to disbelieve for joy like the disciples, but that is the substance of the Christian life that you and I are invited to live day by day, hour by hour, moment by moment, in fellowship with the risen Lord Jesus. That's the sum and substance of the Christian life, and it's not something reserved for a precious few. It's the birthright of every believer. Look with me at 1 John 1 for a moment. The Apostle John, he starts the first two verses by talking about having seen Jesus in the flesh. He bore witness. He's writing to a lot of people that did not see Jesus in the flesh. And after Jesus has ascended, look at what he says in verse 3. That which we've seen and heard and proclaimed to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. Okay, I get it. That's a church. And indeed, our fellowship as a church, is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the birthright of every believer to fellowship, to have communion with God. It does, we understand in a, in a sense this disbelieving for joy. But we need to realize that it's true, it's real fellowship, that Christ delights to fellowship with His people. That's incredible, isn't it? That, that as we draw near to Him by faith, He joyfully, He gladly makes Himself available. And just as in the Old Testament, those, the fragrance of the offering wafted up to heaven as a pleasing aroma to God, so too is the gathering of the saints. Particularly sweet is the scent of saints that are bearing the fruit of the Spirit. And Jesus gives himself completely to us. Isn't that amazing? And if that's true, if all of this is true, then the only logical thing is for us to give ourselves completely to him. I saw a sign the other day that said, whatever you're doing, always give 100% unless you're giving blood. When it comes to fellowship with Christ, the more we give of ourselves in service, in joy, in study of his word, the more, of he, more he gives of himself to us. Christ delights in and draws near when we live our lives as living sacrifices to him. And what an amazing gift. 
Now, if that's true, that you and I have been invited to live our lives in fellowship with Christ as we, as we seek him in his word, as we seek him in prayer, as we gather as the church, when we partake of the sacraments, those things, it seems really foolish that you and I waste our time with other trivial things, don't we? Other obsessions and give so little time to fellowship with Christ. How many days this week did you go about your business, whether it was work, whether it was hobbies, whether it was just wasting time, and you could come to the end of the day and realize I spent almost no time in fellowship with Christ? Jonah 2.8 says, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. When we look to, when we consume ourselves with earthly things, we are forfeiting the joy of living our lives day by day in communion with Christ. No room remains for divided interests. No matter what we may know theologically, how we may live morally, if we do not have communion with Christ, our Christianity proves itself to be impoverished. Uh, Let us never grow cold or dull to this reality. By the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we have peace with him. Sins have been forgiven, and we can live in lasting, real fellowship with the Lord Jesus. The Christian message is more than a, a set of facts that we recite on Sunday. It is something that penetrates every square inch of our lives. In your struggles, the thing that sustains us is fellowship with Christ. In our Bible study, the thing that enlightens us is fellowship with Christ. In our prayer, the thing that, that warms our chilly souls is fellowship with Christ. In the worship of the church, the thing that motivates us to sing and to worship and to be attentive to the word with all that we have is that joy of fellowship with Christ. Let me ask you, beloved, is that what the gospel is to you? I was reading something the other day about Jerry Bridges. Some of you have read and really enjoyed Jerry Bridges' book. He was a dear a Christian author, brother in the Lord, who went to be with the Lord about six years ago. And the statement was made that what made Jerry Bridges unique is that he never, he never got over the grace of God in the gospel. I thought that was wonderfully put, that he was so astounded, even into old age, he was so astounded that Jesus Christ should forgive sins and invite us in to fellowship with the Trinity, that he never got over it, and it became the sum and substance, not just of the Christian life, but of his life. May that be true of us as well. How do we apply this text? Just two applications. First, we see it in this text. Christ is especially and uniquely present with his people as they gather on the Lord's day. You know, it's interesting, all the post-resurrection appearances where Jesus meets with the gathered church, when we are told what day it is, it's always Sunday. It was church. It was the people gathering and Jesus coming to gather with them. That is why we worship on the Lord's day, because we see the way that Jesus built that pattern 
into the life of the early church that as they gathered, he met with them on the Lord's Day. That's exactly what's going on here. They gathered for evening worship. You don't know what you're going to miss if you're not here for evening worship tonight. When Christ's church gathers together on the Lord's Day, even for those of us who walk with him and know his presence day by day, there is a special way in which he meets with his church in this holy convocation. And second, just a simple application. We need to, we need to put away the sins that are entangling us and the worldly entrapments that are preoccupying us and we need to fix our eyes upon Jesus. And I'm going to suspect that there are many in this room who say, well, I'm a Christian, but I, I don't know anything about this communion with Christ. That has never been a reality. I'm going to tell you those two things are what are probably lacking. You may be entangled in sin. When the world, the flesh, and the devil are, 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 are so having their way with us that we give way at every turn, we will not know or enjoy communion with God. And then you're not setting your eyes on Christ, making it your pursuit of him, your chief obsession, your chief preoccupation. It may be a preoccupation among many others. If I don't have golf that day, if I don't have something better to do, then I will, I'll spend a few minutes in the word or I'll go to worship. If fellowship with Jesus Christ, if fixing your eyes on Jesus Christ is not your chief preoccupation, then it will mean nothing to you. It will always be a foreign idea. So let us turn from sin. Let us fix our eyes upon the resurrected Lord Jesus and live with him, walk with him in communion till he takes us home. Let's pray together. Lord our God, we confess that all of us, we have a certain numbness, a certain callousness, even, even believers, even those of us who spend time in your word every day, we, we have that chill that leads to numbness. We have that freezer burn because we do get distracted, distracted by the laziness of the flesh, the preoccupations of the world, and the deceit of the devil. And God, all of that, all of that is worthless. All of that is a complete waste when what awaits us is fellowship with the heart of Christ. Lord, we praise you for the Holy Spirit who unites us with him. Though we may not see Christ in the flesh, our sub the, the substance of our worship is not the visible and the physical, but the invisible spiritual bond we have with Jesus Christ. And so we pray that you would both make us a 